always tell my kids is like be always friendly to people in the supermarket or like you 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 will never know where to meet them next like who they know what's the story and and just so just be friendly to everyone i think that's a the most important advice I give to my kids, be friendly to everyone. And that's the best investment you'll ever do. Kjetil Haga is the founder of Blue Front Equity, a pure play seafood private equity firm. In this episode, we cover how Kjetil ended up being an entrepreneur in the seafood industry, why aquaculture and salmon farming has great growth trajectory, how hard it is to set up a new fund and secure capital for it, and what's the biggest investment opportunity Hietil sees right now. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Thank you so much for inviting us uh, home. So I know you recently visited Barcelona for the Seafood Expo. And the reason I want to start there is because it's been a long time since the whole industry has gathered at a conference, I guess. So can you just give us some the summary of being in Barcelona? Did you see anything new or was it just catching up with the colleagues and networking, etc.? Uh, first, I think it was extremely good to be back. Uh, it's been a long time, as you just said, uh, and I just met so many people, which I haven't been been talking to for for a few years. I I was just walking around saying hi to people, which I actually forgot the name on because they're people I only meet at, at shows, right? So it was extremely good to be back, just talking to people, connecting with the industry again, and uh, and basically just get up to speed again and um, revisit uh, all companies, all relationships and and basically get get up to full speed again. I think that was the most important thing for me uh, at least. And of course, uh, visiting a couple of com- companies that we have been talking to. Uh, and it's always great to meet people at the show because you can be very effective meeting a lot of people at a very short time. So it was just... Very, very good to be back and, and first time in Barcelona too, which was which was great. I can definitely imagine that. Mm. So just if we're just going to start with seafood broadly, can you just give mm. the short story on how you got involved in the industry and why I also mm. think it's an exceptional industry to be involved in as, an, as a fund, which we'll come to, of course, but just seafood in general, where did you yeah. find an interest? 
No, like like a lot of interests, uh, it's uh, it was not my choice. <laughs> it's just the seafood industry kind of came to me more, and I came to the seafood industry because uh, when I look back, I, I I sometimes wonder how I get exposure to the industry. And even though I, I went to school in Bergen um, at that point in time, when I when I finished school it was in in twenty oh eight, and there were there were no one like coming to the school, presenting the industry, talking about the seafood industry. There was even though Bergen is considered a seafood city, it was it was uh, it was nothing. So I didn't know anything about the industry when I left, um, and and that's that's compared to now because now I know the industry is actually active at the school, talking to students, uh, presenting their opportunities. Uh, but that was not the case when I was there. Uh, so I just started off uh, basically founding a consultant company. And um, and together with a couple of friends and, and relationships, and uh, one of the one of the cases that I got uh, first basically was a liquidity budget for a cod farmer, which was uh, <laughs> which was pretty good because cod farming at that time wasn't very profitable. So the liquidity liquidity budget has the curve was pretty steep. <laughs> And uh, so I was. Uh, th- that was kind of my first. My first exposure was liquidity budget for a cod farmer as a consultant, and uh, it kind of opened my eyes for the industry and how much money and opportunities there were. Uh, but but what made you start the company in the first place? Because you said you founded a company, right? So yeah. Pretty early on, you started yeah. to found companies. But what yeah. made you able to say, "I'm just going to found a company" instead of joining a you know, normal. Yeah, normal I, think, I, think that's, I think that's a personality thing because I got an entrepreneurial bug in me, uh, which, uh, which, uh, so I, I don't fit in in a very big corporation, basically, uh, and um, and it was also, uh, it was also not planned. I got I got a call from a from a friend saying that there's an opportunity here to start something or co-found something, and I, I at that time I was working for. Uh, one of the biggest companies in Norway uh, in the oil and gas industry. And I, I was working there for three months. And after three months, I said, like, I, I need to leave. So when I got this call uh, to co-found this company, I said, like, yes, immediately and just left. Uh, and then I got exposure to the sector as a consultant. And then I didn't look back from there. So if you're going to look at Seafood as an investment thesis, mm. uh, before starting your fund, you did a pretty good analysis on the protein market. Do you want to sort of just take the listeners yeah, through yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but basically before doing all of that, I my, my, my I was working as a consultant for a seafood industry, basically. And as a consultant, you get paid yeah. hourly for uh, for consulting owners uh, of seafood companies. That was my that was my my line of work. And um, and but but after a couple of years, my entrepreneurial entrepreneurial bug kicked in again. So I, I I co-founded a shipping company um, targeting the seafood sector, and uh, and when I was trying to fund, I didn't have any any kind of background in in corporate finance or in funding at that time. I was only, I was a consultant, and uh, I had a really really hard time funding that seafood company, that shipping company. And one of the issues was that there, there, I didn't find any professional investors with knowledge of that industry in, in Norway at that time back in 2010 there were only um, investors focusing on like the shipping industry or oil and gas industry there were a lot of specialized lawyers accountants specialized investors towards those industries but but not towards the seafood industry at all so so when I came uh, to them with, with my 
my company saying that the seafood industry is a great industry to be in, they were always like, ah, I don't know the industry. I don't like it goes up, it goes down. It's profitable one year, losing money the next. I don't, this is not for me. So I had a really, really hard time funding the company and I need to take a, a really, really hard um, hard beating on, on the on the value before I got in, in any money. Uh, when I look back, it was, it was I, I learned a lot. Uh, and uh, I kind of, I have my name on, on founding a company in the seafood sector, uh, which is now a very, very big and profitable company. Uh, and, but, but after a few years, I, I saw that my, my shares were diluted and I just figure out I'll, I'll take out the money and move on. And, uh, and, and then I moved to the United States and, and took my second master's degree. And when I came back, I just figured out I have to do something with this with this knowledge gap uh, between uh, financing and, and, and knowledge of the seafood sector. And, and at, then we kind of sat down and looked at this, this protein analysis on why seafood is good, because we had to convince people on why seafood is good, because the knowledge was not there on the other side of the table. So basically, instead of me coming to, to the investors uh, thinking, of course, they know that the seafood industry is a very, very good place to be. And very, very smart to put their money here. Uh, I, I had to co- come and say like, why this is a good place and, and put your money and kind of educate them from the beginning. Um, and, and basically that's the, that's the overall protein analysis. Uh, start, starting off basically with, um, with the growing population, kind of the, the growing middle class mm-hmm. eats more, spends more on, on healthy food. Uh, people move to the cities, people in the city spend more on healthy food. Uh, there's more like health awareness from a general perspective. Uh, and of course, it's aging population, which also spends more on, 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 on healthy proteins. And when you put all of that together, you kind of have an underlying growth uh, for healthy proteins on around 2 or 3% annually. Mm-hmm. And if you go and see like, okay, I want to get into healthy proteins, like where, where to go, then you have to look at, at seafood, uh, which is a very good place to start. And then you look at how the fisheries is kind of flat. There is no potential growth in the fisheries. And then you have, then you, you know that there's underlying growth of two or 3% and aquaculture needs to support that growth. And we, if aquaculture is 50% of the total seafood volume, you know that aquaculture have to grow at least maybe 6% only to, only, only to support the growth. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have, uh, very very strong underlying growth. We, we like we used to say like the the tide lifts all boats. So if you invest in the seafood sector, you kind of have the tide lifting all your investments. And of course, inside seafood again, there are a lot of opportunities. But but of course, salmon salmon and salmon farming is is, is very attractive. It's a very attractive protein, and and uh, and uh, it while compared to other protein mm-hmm. sources, it's extremely good. It's extremely effective. And, uh, and also when you look at kind of the ESG uh, or en- environmental, social and, and governance perspective, salmon farmers are ranked pretty high. Yeah. So, so basically what you have is a, is a protein source, which is considered one of the most sustainable protein sources. And if you also add to the equation that we're in Norway and Norway is a leading salmon producer, I felt like, okay, this is a great place to start. Like how... I want to contribute that the salmon value chain uh, will be more uh, sustainable because if it gets more sustainable, we can also convince um, stakeholders that they will give us growth. 
Definitely. So it's uh, it's basically a very ordinary uh, analysis, uh, mm. but it's a very strong one, uh, which has proven right. Uh, and uh, and that's uh, yeah, that's uh, of course good for us and good for our investors. Definitely. Mm. So looking at if you had you had a thesis, right? And but it's a completely different ball game to raising the money because it seems like you know if you had one successful fund, it's very easy to raise the second fund. But to raise that first fund without showing that track record as a fund manager, yeah, needs it probably needs a lot of qualities. Uh, you need to be persistent, stubborn, probably. But can you talk talk to us about that journey from mm-hmm. having a thesis to actually setting up yeah. the fund? Because that's not you easy. have to be crazy too. It's uh, <laughs> it takes a lot of time. Right? It takes a lot of time, and it's 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 not easy at all. It's not easy at all, uh, and you have to have that kind of a little bit of the stupidity that you think like I, I can do this, I can do this. When I look back, I I, I like I, I didn't understand how much work that is and how risky it is and how 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 long it will take. So um uh, so so basically I we of course like you you sit down and then you have to gather a team. Of course you have to start with a team and you try to 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 collect people uh which which works good together. You have to also convince potential investors that you have been working with them over time. So because and no one wants to get into a team which is brand new, yeah, exactly. like you don't know each other, guys. So you probably you will quit after a year, and you will get angry at him after after two years. So an investor will never invest in a team which don't have kind of a very very strong ties together and and a proven a proven work uh, relationship over time. So I have to find that first, and, and then of course you have to. You have to build um, an advisory network, and and of course that even that is hard. Like, how do you get investors when I don't have experience, I don't have the money, but do you want to be my advisor? That that's even that is very very hard. Uh, so you have to work a lot to get a really really good advisory network on board, and then it's like okay, how to in- incentivize your your network and 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 how to fund yourself during this time, and then and then. Uh, and then you have to also like start to talk to investors and, and basically talk to investors saying like, okay, I've never done this before. Can you please give me your money? And so I can invest them in a sector that you don't know. And, and so my fir- the first question is always, yeah, have you, have you done this before? No. So you want my money? You're not, pe- are you putting in something on your own money into it? I said, okay, I'm putting in, I'm putting in my own money. Yeah, but you're not putting in as much as we do so it's it, it, it's a constant battle and then everyone is saying like okay this this was great this is a great opportunity i will see who others will pitch exactly. in and then you have to go with others and he's he, he's he's with us if you are yeah. and then you have to go back and forth and i'm kind of broke between yeah. potential investors for a time and then and then in the end it's always that you have to have someone that really really believes in you and and kind of trusts you and and for us, we were very uh, fortunate to get um, Farid on board. Uh, but I totally understand why uh, they also took a stake in the management company and, and saying like, you guys haven't done this before. We need a strong hand on the wheel, mm. which I totally understand. Uh, but for us, it gave us the opportunity to build a track record, which we needed when we now found the Blue Front in 2020. Because when we find the Blue Front in 2020, we had, I, we had a proven track record we have done it before. Myself and Simon had worked together doing it before, and we were successful in doing it. So when and and even then, it took us at least a year 
to fundraise. So to, to, to be able to, to get a perfect size because, and then the, because there's the second hurdle or, or the second or the 10th hurdle to, if you talk about hurdles, it's a really, really long race, but <laughs> as is, is, is in relation to, um, uh, it's in relation to the fund size because you kind of build a strategy. Um, and if, if you say like, okay, I want to invest in 10 companies. Okay. Show me your deal flow. Okay. Then you have to work out the deal flow. And you have to do that before they put in the money. So you have to run around talking to the company saying, pretending you have the money, even though you don't have the money. Uh, and then you do that, you build up a deal flow, potential targets and everything. And then and then you, you have a couple of deals like saying that you need, uh, say, 500 million Norwegian. And, and what happened if you only get the 300 in the fundraising? Like, basically, it's like, okay, I have 300, which is a pretty good success, but I have sold the strategy which is which is based on 500 so because the, and then they, then you go back to investors saying like okay i i can only do three investments not five and then they will say then i don't get the diversity the uh, uh, diversification yeah. that i that i wanted so then i pull back so it's it's a constant it's a you have to be in constant movement and constant talking to investors uh, speaking to them update them on how it's going uh, talking to them about deal flow opportunities and, and, and hopefully maybe do a deal in the beginning uh, and then have to give, uh, maybe you give some perks to the investors which are on board first. Mm-hmm. And then so there's a constant kind of dealing and, and back and forth for at least one to up to two years before you have the fund closed. And that was the case with us too. It's like probably... We uh, we started working with this, and it took took us like half a year of planning, and then one year of fundraising. So it was like close to two years before we were were like finally closed. Of course, like in the end, there are tail end on a lot of agreements and yeah. stuff. So you you kind of have you you, you kind of you like half a year before we 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 closed, we kind of stopped fundraising, only like working on the investment uh, the investors, which which were said like yes, but we're, we're doing due diligence and supporting them in different side letters and agreements and stuff. So but uh it's a it's a long journey. I can talk forever about yeah. this journey. I was actually in a meeting in, in Trondheim the other day, talking to and, and there was a guy uh from a Swedish fund and we ended up talking for two hours only on fundraising and like did you do that? How did you do that? Like how do you think about that? So and it was a really, really cool meeting, even though we were there for talking about something completely different. It was just so fascinating and, and meet people who's been been through the same journey. Is there any point during this journey where you are close to giving up? Or do you believe that in order to make this, you need to sort of never think about that? Because if you think about it, now, oh, this is too hard. I can't get the deals right. Maybe it's not the right timing. As soon as you start thinking that, it will be so easy to give up. So do you, or do you also yeah, have to Yeah, there's sort of, of course, like... Uh, that's why I say you have to have a little bit of stupidity. Like you have to just not think about the failure. And but of course it's hard when you kind of work without salary, and then you have a family to support and everything. So that's of course very very hard. And it's a it's a hard sell telling your family. Okay, I got a high paid job, but now I'm going to do something really really risky. Uh, and I don't know if that will success or not, but uh, yeah, but it, it does come with guarantee, right? So you spend so many many hours, but so it can be worth nothing, right? Can be worth nothing in the end. So many hours and so much money you put into something that you actually it's uh, like you don't know, like you basically don't know until the until the end. And uh, but for me, it was never like I 
I never thought about giving up. I was I was just so determined that that this is my future, and I really really wanted so much. Uh, and I guess that's that's that that's how an entrepreneurial brain works. And don't see all the risks and don't consider all the options all the time. You just like look at the target and you and you go. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And uh, myself and Simon, uh, we were very very good in focusing. So we only spent time on the most important tasks all the time. We're like every every day we're like, okay, what is the most important task to do? Like there are hundred things to do, but like what is the most important? Because we got limited time and limited resources. We're only two people. There's a lot of nice to do. Yeah. Like should we do that? Maybe that should we talk to him? Maybe it's valuable, but it's a little bit more valuable to talk to him. So let's yeah. book a meeting with him and spend time supporting him instead. So uh so that's uh, i think it's you have to have that in front of brain and of course you have to have that structure and working very very focused because there's so many opportunities to, yeah. to go in this direction for example in 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 deal flow like there's so many opportunities to 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 just look at cases which is interesting yeah but it's not what i said i would do it was like okay you got a really really interesting thing i think it's really really cool but I told the investors to do something else. So goodbye. You have to be very, very strict on the focus. Hmm. I think it all comes back to the saying that if you try to do everything, you do nothing. Yeah. Right? So that just comes back to the point. Yeah, that yeah, that's, you have uh, to that's focus. Very, very, yeah, that's that's true. It, it, it kind of comes back to that. And we, um, like uh, my partners, I'm always say like fortune favors the prepared mind. So we, we, we try to do, do kind of, try to always be prepared on everything we do. We're prepared. And then we try to do less, right? So we, ha- we 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 sort out the activities, and then we do what we do. We do really, really good, and that's uh, kind of the basis of our success. To 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 have uh, that focus and and always be prepared, uh, and and um, I think that's like when we come back to investors, we 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 we, we say something, we actually do it, and we do it with with. With everything we have, so I think that's one of our success factors. Building on focus, one main topic is, of course, the investments and sort of the infrastructure piece. And mm. maybe some people who listen don't really understand why you just can't be an investor invest in the farm, right? Mm. But it's not that easy. So just no. given that, but it's also I know it's a clear plan why not to become a farmer, but mm. it's not that easy to become a farmer if you wanted to. No, no, no. obviously there is a no, lot. No, of money I think I think from, from from our perspective, like like I said, we invest in the seafood value chain. We try to make the value chain more sustainable. Mm. Uh, because we think the value chain is like you can't always focus on the farming part. There's so much to to take care of in the whole value chain, and of course, like to have ex- capital exposure towards farming, that opportunity you have in the stock market. Yeah. So so the investors are like, okay, you invest in salmon farms in the stock market, but a value chain, you don't have that opportunity in the stock market. So that makes it perfect for a private equity structure. Because I'm giving people exposure to companies they can't get exposure to themselves, so it, and that makes the thesis very very strong. Uh, because it's hard to say like I uh, I will put your money in the stock market, right? It's uh, well, why why should you do that? Definitely. Mm. Well, when you're trying to get the deals done, it seems like there has to be a, an interesting dynamic because probably if a company is desperate to sell to you, maybe that could be not the best sign in the world right yeah. but also like maybe the company you want is not for sale 
So talk a bit about how that dynamic works, because there has to be a seller and a buyer. And of course, I don't know if this goes for the infrastructure piece, but it has to be fair to say that in seafood, it's a lot of family-owned company, right? Mm. So how does that dynamic work? Finding the right companies, but also convincing them to sell. Which and, that's, and, and, and that's like one of the one of the things that are hard and, and why it takes so much time and why it was like why my background was relevant because I, when I started up as a consultant, I met a lot of companies. So I had a lot of relationships with family-owned companies. And that started up when I was 24. So I, I, I or even, even actually before that. I actually looked back at my resume the other day and I saw that I was actually punching sea lice in a database when I was 13. So I, I had to start to, I started to like, yeah, kind of uh, present that more. Um, but um, one of the, uh, um, like that relationship start, goes way, 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 way back. And uh, our first investment in this fund, which was uh, Redox, uh, which was um, actually a company where I was, uh, I was cleaning the office of the owner of Redox when I was in high school. So I knew him from then. So a lot of this is goes goes way back. So you can't just call someone and say, I want to buy your company. Uh, you have to build relationships over time. And, and then you have to also show that you can create value for them, that you actually have something to bring to the table. And that needs to be more than capital. It, it, can only, it can't be capital because then you have a lot of opportunities. As a business owner, you have to bring something more to the table. And we uh, invest in partnerships. Uh, and since we invest uh, as a partner, it's always very good to have a, a good uh, working relationship. And, and how, how, how can we kind of, how can we do diligence a relationship? Okay, it's to talk to them over time. You say, okay, you said that like last year, what did you do this year? Okay, you're actually a guy who, who delivers what you promise. And, and, and then we build, build a relationship over time. So I have to like. So my job is basically having talking to a lot of companies, uh, even though they're not investable right now, but maybe they will be sometimes in the future, or maybe they'll never be. So there are very very few investments which comes knocking on your door. You have to go out and hunt, and 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 that hunting takes time. It can take years. Sometimes you're lucky, but, but often it takes very very long time. If you look at the value proposition you have to propose for a company, because sometimes if, if I think about private equity, I think about a firm maybe has like 50 employees who so like have a clear structure and like balance sheet optimization, mm. making it ready to go on stock exchange, etc. But this seems like a more boutique private equity firm. So no, it's more, more uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I would say like the tickets that we write are more venture capital sized, but that's because the companies in the value chain, it's not very big. So, uh, of course, everyone wants to kind of look at bigger companies and that's kind of the, the trend. And, and if you go for bigger companies, they're often more professionalized and kind of the, the things that you do is more tuning yeah. uh, than, than what we do. We do growth. So it's basically growth investments. Um, it's not the traditional private equity, with it, which is like yeah, split, uh, split up or buy off yeah. stock market or put it on or list or split or yeah. divest or, 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 or that type of strategy. We only do growth. We only kind of look, we talk to companies and say like, okay, you got a strategy now, but if you had, if you had, if, if money was not, um, um, if, if you had money, more money, would you think differently? Yeah. 
uh, and if money was not a scarce resource, how would you look at your strategy then? Would you would you then consider buying a competitor? And then they said like, yeah, I've always considered that, but I never had the money to do that. Exactly. Okay, but do you think that would be a smart move? Maybe we can do that together. Yeah. So we together can do something that you can't do on your own. And in addition, we kind of, okay, you have been working with this company for 20, 40 years. You have never never taken out money. Maybe it's time for you also to to take out some money and then reduce the risk, maybe maybe work less, maybe. And and, and in many cases, we I, I, I talk to, to, to owners or to CEOs, which is often the owners too, that, okay, the next time I'm selling the company, you're out because we will get a much, much higher value if you sell a company which is not very found, founder dependent. So we buy a company which is founder dependent and we work together with that founder to build a structure inside that company so it's not founder dependent when we sell. Mm-hmm. So basically we open, open up the door for, for many, many more buyers and also a higher value just to that structure uh, that we build. When you when you buy companies, how conscious are you about? We, we were not buying; we invest in invest, when invest you, in companies. When you invest <laughs> in companies, mm. how conscious are you about sort of the exit strategy? Not at all. Just want to make the company great, or do you always have to think like many parts ahead to see like? No, okay, we have we have to take think about many yeah. many parts ahead. We have to, yeah. And I think that's kind of the the value that we bring um, is that we. We have kind of a storyboard or, or, or a way of doing things. And, and one of them is that we look at exit candidates pretty early on and saying, okay, that we want to sell like that company is a, or, or that company is a potential buyer. What is their strategy? We have to analyze who they are so that we build a company which will fit in, 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 into them. So we're not building a company who, who no one wants. So we have to build a company who, who who's a great fit for for um, for a handful of, of potential buyers. So that's that's extremely important, and it's it's often it's often something that uh, current founders are or or, or the, the founders that we invest together with is is not aware of. Uh, yeah. Because, like you said, the timing aspect is so key, right? So it's it seems likely that you can't get sort of get stuck. We like we want an exit, but then if you haven't done your homework, suddenly it doesn't fit like the right yeah, companies, and then I know. So we have to keep that in mind all the time, uh, because if if you do a couple of if you do a couple of investments uh, or buy a new factory or change your strategy or reposition yourself in the value chain, maybe you you will not be considered as a potential object for an industrial buyer, basically because you you did what you did. Mm-hmm. So so you have to also uh, think about that all the time. Uh, and, and and try to try to be critical with our all strategic investments and, and see like how does that fit yeah. in a potential exit candidate. Let's talk a bit mm. about the the salmon and the salmon price, just because it's interesting. Mm. Because right now it's rocket high, but I think many people, maybe especially twenties, early thirties, don't really know the history of the salmon price. That it mm. hasn't been you know this amazing industry all the time, like. There has been some really brutal times uh, before, yeah. but then now it seems like it has found its way and it seems like an extremely profitable industry and product. Like, 
What's your bird eyes view on salmon, salmon price, where it's headed? Do you care about that at all? Is it too volatile to really? No, no. So we tend, of course, like one of our investment philosophies to tend to invest in companies which are not very dependent on the salmon price. But of course, if the salmon price is low over time, companies will, 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 will restructure their, their investment budgets and, and you will, of course, uh, we're not that resilient to, to the price, of course. So we will, of course, but 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 we we try to invest in companies which which is not hit by that uh, volatile price, which has been very volatile historically. Uh, our in philosophy was that we 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 just like when when we sold our investment tests to investors, we we basically said like there's the the growth is capped by licenses. The underlying growth for seafood annually is around 10 percent and there's and the new uh the new farming methods like land-based close at sea offshore will start to develop or is developing but it will take a lot of years before they produce any volume which will do anything with the supply demand balance so we were like okay we said like their investors, I will put your money into us and put also uh, money into the into the seafood companies in the in the stock market, because we we see a higher um, salmon price going forward. It's the level which it's at now. It's it's way higher than even we predicted, of course. But but it's and probably not sustainable, right? At this price, or like i i don't think it's sustainable at this this price but but, but kind of you never know uh, because like in the history of, of of the salmon price we have seen this kind of shift and then it kind of reestablish on a higher level so i, I think it will i think it will adjust down yeah. of, of course but but like if you go back just a few years back to 2018 19 or or even back to 2016 when when we said like okay 62 norwegian per kilo is a very very high price like it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable, and then we experience growth in production, um, a little bit growth in production, and then we see oh the price doesn't move, so maybe it is sustainable. And now we see the kind of the same thing happen again, like in next level. Yeah. So so what will happen going forward? They, um, I think it will adjust down, but I think we'll also see like that uh, maybe it will not go back to where it were. If you take prices, of course, one thing, but there's so much, I don't know if hype is the right word, but let's say keen interest on the new technology. You have offshore, mm. you have people saying that it's not sustainable in the fjords, they want to control the sea lice, the escape, etc. What is your current assessment on, is it is it only experiments so far, land-based, offshore? Do you see data that makes you confident in having a prediction in this is how salmon farming will look in five years because it's a scaling problem, not a tech problem? Yeah, it's I, I I always say it's a tech problem, not a, a scaling, or it's a scaling problem, not a tech problem, because I like there's the technology is out there to do this profitable, but there's it's biology, so and and we have to scale it, and that's a lot of uh, uh, it's a lot of learning before we're able to do this, and when I I saying to do this, do this at the volume, yeah. which will make a difference, because there's no problem to farm fish on land. There's no problem to farm fish in close to that sea or offshore. The problem is to farm a lot of fish, uh, which which kind of supports the investment. 
and 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 and, and kind of uh, and make that fish or or produce the same fish every time in the same volume without having a lot of setbacks. That that that's the kind of the issue. But this is the same story about the kind of the net pens if you go back. So it's only only a matter of time, in my view, before we see more volume coming out from alternative production methods and and the salmon, the high salmon price that we see now, will 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 fuel investments, and and that is what is very interesting for us because all these new farming methods also builds up a new supplier industry. Yeah. Because now we're like, like the traditional supplier industry for salmon. It was people producing cages and nets and uh, and a few vessels and a feed barge, right? But now they're much more complex. Now it's ozone, it's oxygen, it's hygiene, is 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 much more complex, um, like artificial intelligence, vision technology, digitalization. There's 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 much much more complex it's uh, uh, systems which which kind of fuel totally new supplier industry, which makes this a very, very attractive investment universe for us. Yeah. And this actually reverts back when we were pitching back in in 2020, because I have a slide where I show the S-curve. You can probably get that slide and put yeah, it in, yeah, in the cast. Yeah, let's There's start. an S-curve, which we learned at school, and S-curve kind of um, uh, shows and the development of an industry. And I said in my pitch back in 2020 that we are in the beginning uh, of the growth phase. And I and then I showed the American uh, semiconductor industry and said, like, okay, what, what happens in an industry when an industry is in the early beginnings uh, of the growth phase? And if you, if you look, look at the semiconductor industry in the, in the US, there's a lot of people entering the space and you saw a lot of transactions and consolidation. So basically what you saw was a great environment for, for to be an active owner and an active investor. And this is exactly what we're now seeing in the salmon sector too, because we're now in the growth phase, we're looking at new opportunities, new production methods, and, and the industry is, is, is on, on, on the rise and a lot of new companies want to get in and there are a lot of companies which have a lot to bring to the table because we're, we're, we're trying to farm at land we're trying to farm close at sea we're trying to farm offshore and there's a the, the kind of the supply industry is just growing tremendously and gives us a very very unique position as kind of the the, the, the pure play seafood uh, private equity investor with, with basically a long track record so I think we are in the, actually in, in the sweet spot of what we said in 2020 will happen. And that's actually, it's happened. And then there's a couple of investors calling us actually uh, saying, like, uh, okay, how is it going? So ah, it's going pretty good. I hope so, because what, what you said did happen. Yeah. So I expect that you did capitalize on, <laughs> on that yeah, strategy. Exactly. Mm. But looking at, if you just take land-based uh, farming, so... Just giving that there's so much ocean, like ocean is basically the earth, right? So giving all the all the ocean space. So why does it really make sense to do something like that on land? I understand, of course, you want to be close to market, you want to cut down cost and transport, etc. But why do you feel like there is a need to do farming no, on land? Or is that because we have to think about the ocean health. So we have to do we have to farm food more sustainable without 
um, environmental footprint. And that's what we have to, and, and, and if you are on land, you can crawl, uh, control a lot of parameters. And, and uh, of course, I see a lot of opportunities in the sea too, but we have yep. to do it in the sea without uh, pollution or without any effect. I wouldn't say pollution because a, it's a discussion of yep. is it pollution or not. No, yep. it's without any effect on the environment. And that's why we introduced the term ocean health. So we have to farm where we consider the fish health and the ocean health at the same time. And if we can kind of balance these two, I believe that there's a, there's a great future for, for salmon farming in the sea, as long as we can also make sure that we don't have any negative effect on the ocean health. That makes sense. Have you seen the um, the revolution in sort of the, the cell-based seafood farming, where you take the cell and yeah. the protein and try to scale it in the lab? Have you watched that? Because uh, it seems like yeah, they're... It's, it, it's, it's happening in all food industries. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it, that's nothing new. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, like, I... Of course, I, I, I'm not very knowledgeable about that. I, I see it's happening. It's, I, I don't know the technology behind it, but there's always a long way to scale something from a lab to a commercial use. Uh, but of course, uh, right now, I don't see it as a, as a immediate threat, but, but of course, in the future, uh, people want to, but I think it's a, a consumer shift that needs to be happened too. Yeah. But that consumer shift can happen fast if it if it hits. But uh, but doesn't happen fast in food. Isn't food more slow moving, or do you feel like food can have rapid shifts? Like I I think that food. I'm 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 very very big fan of the kind of Bill Gates quote that you underestimate yeah. the changes that will, will will happen in, or we overestimate the change will happen in three years, but you underestimate the changes that will happen in ten. Mm. Because like you try so hard to make a change and it doesn't happen, but when the change when it comes. It happens really fast. Yeah, and that's uh, that's uh, that's 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 a very very good quote, and that's um, that's something that we've seen across the industry in terms of how they how they take take um, how they use technology, how they absorb new technologies. Like there's been a lot of talk, nothing happens for many many years, but but suddenly like everyone everyone's doing it. So definitely. Hmm. Just the last topic I wanted to discuss today is the focus on hiring culture and values, etc. Because mm. you're now in a stage where you have started to hire. And mm. I guess you have been conscious about the company culture you want to build, right? Because mm. this is also a company that can have a very long trajectory, given that you have success. So how conscious have you been about setting the culture, the people you hire? Is that something on top of your mind all the time? And something it's very interesting to see out in practice as well, given that you hire now. Yeah, I think and we, we myself and Simon, we sit down uh, and did discuss a lot about the kind of the values that we want to have improved on. And uh, I think our most important value is, is we call it friendly. And, and that's, that's basically, it relates to so many things because first, like, People don't consider investors as as friendly. Like it's it's it's, it's very like it, it's hard. Like to, to be friendly is actually a competitive advantage. To be friendly, like people, I, I had an investor uh, last week. He was not friendly, and then but you are so, okay. Like uh, one plus to me, and then and then also when it comes to friendly towards everyone, like to the the management of the company to investors just 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 to be friendly kind of with all stakeholders i think that's really really important and 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 also a little bit i try to to be friendly against startups and and early phase companies because 
I think that uh, we fuel uh, or our deal flow is fueled by a, by a lot of startups and and and, and uh, so so I have to support startups and, and companies even though they're not investable for me because maybe they will be in the future if I if I only think about myself like I, I need I need to help and, and try to build as much interest in the seafood industry as, as possible because that will help me in the end um, and and also it, it kind of relate to uh, relates to uh, how we address people internally, how we answer mails. Like we get a lot of lot of emails from different companies wanting to get funding. We always try to be very positive. Always try to find like okay, if we're not the right people, maybe you should try contacting him. And but we could just not answer yeah. or just say no. But we try to kind of have that friendliness that we try to help uh, and 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 try to. To be a part of the industry more than more than just part of, of, of Bluefront, and that's what we're saying to, to new employees. Like, you're now a part of the industry. You have to do anything you can to to build this industry, and if you do that uh, good, it, it it will relate back to us uh, in the end. Yeah, so definitely, like a thriving ecosystem helps everyone, right? It does. Yeah, but of course, like you have to have the focus, or you can yeah, yeah. only do that. But but it's it's it, it's very like, it's just it's just like some small things like day-to-day work when you when you get emails or calls from people and and just try to be friendly as as much as you can and and try to understand that this can be important for them uh and 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 try to help as much as you can it's i try to bring kind of the 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 kind of phrase which was born in silicon valley a few years back that the paid forward culture like you try to help people without getting something back directly but but if you do that uh you you probably have a lot of supporters uh, and after it, a while, and isn't it also that it's a it's a small industry? So if you meet if you meet people in one setting, you'll probably meet them again in another setting in yeah. the future as well. Yeah, right? yeah, that's true. And, and and I always I always tell my kids is like be always friendly to people in the supermarket, or like you 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 will never know where to meet them next, like who they know, what's the story, and and just so just be friendly to everyone. I think that's a the most important advice I give to my kids: be friendly to everyone, and that's the best investment you'll ever do. Like, it will give you so many opportunities just to be friendly to everyone. That's perfect advice. Mm. Just a final question: how how high is the ambition set from you and your team? Like, what's the ultimate goal here? <laughs> or do you just focus on today, or do you want to be like no, no, the no, world's best even? No, 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 we we believe we are the world's best seafood funders. <laughs> uh, uh, we, we believe that we are the most competent seafood investor out there. And that's what, what we tell ourselves. And I, I actually truly believe it. If you see our advisory network and, and the relationships that we have, there's no one that can compare to what we have. So 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 I feel like that's we are at a good place. But will we be there in the future? That's something that we, we don't know. Like so we have to build build on the position that we have. Uh, and and we try to we, our aim is to is to build a build a fund asset asset manager supporting the seafood industry in many phases of the industry and and we do a lot now related to pure water a lot of our investments is related to water and and that's also a scarce resource worldwide so so we want to build an asset manager around sustainable food and 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 clear water that's our long term strategy. But to be able to reach that long-term strategy, we have to be extremely focused and 
the only way we will be able to do that is that if our investors get a good return in this fund. If not, we will not have in the second fund. Yeah, mm. that's a perfect ending. Mm. Basically, a lot of focus. It's the, the key. Yeah, yeah, then we're back <laughs> to the focus. Like, I have my dreams, we have our strategy, yeah. but but to be able to 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 realize that strategy that we have to create value for our investors right now. So so they gives up the op- uh, gives us the opportunity again. If you like this episode and the content we create, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.